Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. In 1904, revival broke out in Wales. The 1904-1905 Welsh revival was the largest Christian revival in the 20th century. It was one of the most dramatic in terms of its effect on the population, and it also happened to trigger a number of outpourings and several other revivals around the other countries in Europe. On the 9th of April, 1906, the Azusa Street Revival broke out. The Azusa Street Revival was a historic meetings that took place, a series of meetings that took place in Los Angeles, California, right in our own state. In the 1730s and 1740s, the first great awakening or the evangelical revival, as it's otherwise known, was a series of Christian revivals that swept across Britain and America. My favorite of the accounts of revival in 1949, going for four years to 1953, the revival broke out in the Hebrides Islands. And I quote from Duncan Campbell's account of this, he says, with the force of a hurricane, the Spirit of God swept into the building and the floodgates of heaven opened. The church resembled a battlefield. On the one side, many were prostrated over over their seats, weeping and sighing. On the other side, some were affected by throwing their arms in the air in a rigid posture. God had come. In the late 1960s, and uh, early 1970s, the Jesus People movement broke out across our nation. There's a movie that's just been made about that. If you've seen it, um, I've heard it's great. I haven't seen it. But basically, the Jesus People movement was a movement of evangelical Christians that uh, broke out across the west coast of America and then spread through North America into Europe and even into Central America. There are many, many, many accounts of revival in church history spanning all the way back to the book of Acts when we see the first move of God or outpouring of God's spirit or revival or whatever you want to title it that started at Pentecost in AD 30. On the 8th of February in 2023, we have seen, if you follow any social media platform that is somewhat Christian, or even the New York Times or the Washington Post, you will see that a move of God has broken out in a university in Kentucky called Asbury. Now, if you look at all of these accounts of revival or moves of God or outpouring of God's Spirit, every single time we see a move of God recorded in church history, there are always two things that are in common. The first being prayer a small group of people, a small group of people get together and faithfully and obediently pray. The second thing that all moves of God have in common is repentance. Every move of God is always preceded by a group of people praying, crying out to God, seeking His presence, and repenting of their sins. Prayer and repentance. But what is this repentance that precedes revival? Well, the the repentance that precedes a move of God or revival or move or whatever you want to call it is always emphasized by a moral cleansing of an individual and his or her own life 
and a desire to see society changed or renewed or transformed, cleansed around the ways of Jesus. Now, what's interesting to me as I consider revivals in history and as a lot of attention has been put in uh, to the university in Kentucky is that a few things are highlighted. You know, we've just finished up a four-week preaching series on prayer. We've just recently launched, in the last couple weeks of two months, uh, prayer rooms here in downtown San Diego and up in Encinitas, where men and women are coming together on a weekly basis to faithfully pray and seek the presence of God. The theme of our prayer meetings as we've launched them has been that of hunger, desiring God's presence to break out in our lives and our church and our communities and beyond. At the end of last year, we did a preaching series on the power of the Holy Spirit. Eight weeks looking at the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I asked myself, God, what are you doing? What is, what is happening amongst us? What's happening in our nation? Possibly even what's happening in our church. I remember four, five years ago, sitting on a rooftop in New York City with Isaac, uh, who was leading worship sitting on a rooftop in New York City, just one block away from Times Square, talking about our desires and ministry and talking about the idea that we wanted to see a move of God in our lifetime. That we wanna see God change society. We wanna see an outpouring of his spirit. We wanna be a part of it. Like I wanna be there for whenever that happens. I wanna see it. I also know that as if every time you look at revival history, and you look at moves of God, we always see that God comes where he's most wanted. And I want to tell you, I really want God. I really want Jesus. I want to see a move of God break out in my own life, in my family, in our church, in our city. Like, I'm here for it. That's what I'm here for. And the, the question we ask is like, why? Like, why? Like, you know, I'm saved. I've given my life to Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Like, my family's good. My kid, or, you know. Why do we want to see an outpouring of God's Spirit? Why, why should we even desire something like that? Well, I want to give you an account from uh, the Welsh Revival that I read, and I think it's fascinating. It says this, in the 1904 Great Welsh Revival, it was marked by a passion for purity. Holiness was the consistent theme as 100,000 new converts rejected their sinful life, confessed Christ, and joined the church. But this change in their lives had a profound impact on culture. It was reported that pit ponies, which is basically like the working ponies, like the donkeys that worked in the mines, they could no longer work, get this, because they couldn't recognize the commands of the converted miners who no longer swore and cursed or beat their ponies. Like literally the ponies did not understand their masters because they stopped swearing. The standard of living went up Health and literacy improved, and money that was previously wasted on alcohol was invested in the home, clothing, food, and books. Pubs closed as abstaining from alcohol became the new norm. Magistrates and lawyers were left with fewer cases to trial as crimes diminished and old debts were all paid. The streets were peaceful. Cardiff jail was left with no inmates, and on New Year's Eve week, there was no one arrested for drunkenness. And this is my favorite part of the whole thing. The police were employed to do nothing. Why do we want to move of God? Because we want God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. I would love it 
if the police in San Diego were employed to do nothing. Imagine what that would be like. What would it be like to send our kids to schools where revival had broken out? What would it be like to go to your university and sit in lecture rooms where people aren't debating this or that, or, but actually just worshiping God? What would it be like to go to your business and, and, and have the security of knowing that the people that you're dealing with and the deals you're trying to make and the sales you're trying to make that are actually being done in a righteous, holy way? where jobs are created and people are, are being looked after, that are, they're getting the benefits that they deserve. People are getting paid at just a right salary. That, what would it be like if a move of God broke out in our city? A pastor visiting Asbury while uh, observing the, the move of God uh, at firsthand, he said this, he said, this move of God is for the young led by the young, as he looks at the accounts. And I just want to ask you, look around us in this room right now. We have a beautiful range currently in, in the church, like of young to old, but actually the majority of you in the room are like between the age of, I don't know, 20 and 35. We have tons of college students, students that are currently this week. I know yesterday, Grace, how long was your pre-meeting? I saw like 18 hours at one point. How long did it go for? They were at a 25-hour pre-meeting in their home. Uh, Sarah, you had a pre-meeting a few weeks back. What, that was 24-hour 40 hours? One, four? Okay, better next time, Sarah. <laughs> God's moving. We have a room of hungry people. You know, we're not here playing church, which is really exciting for me as a pastor. I remember after one of our gatherings sitting with the team and saying, you know what's so encouraging about our church? is like oftentimes when you're a pastor, you're preaching, you're leading worship, like you try and make, well, you get two kinds of congregations. You get a congregation that really likes to be told, like, you're good, and like, well done, and like, keep going. You also get other congregations like yourself where, like, we can challenge and call out and invite you into a bigger story, and you respond. This is a church that responds to exciting prospects about the moves of God, the possibilities of what can happen if God breaks out. And I just sit here and wonder, God, what are you doing, and how can we be a part of it? And so here's my question this morning. Do we want him? You know, like, not do we want crazy, not do we, you know, want, like, to copy something else or repeat, like, do you want Jesus? Do we want Jesus collectively? Do, do we want to experience Jesus in our lives? Like, like, do we want our lives to change, not just, like, behavior change, but, like, heartfelt, deep, internal change that affects my family and my workplace and my school and the city? Do we want generational uh, blessing to be poured out upon our kids and their kids? We just look around the world right now and we can see that we need cleansing, like we need healing. I drove into the city the other day and, you know, I, know, I probably shouldn't even, I saw this billboard and it just said like, use clean needles. And I was like, yeah, that's I understand the, the complexities around, uh, you know, substance abuse and, and getting people into a program that gets people off. But I was just like, should we just rather say, like, use no needles? Like, you know, like, I just, the, what I'm trying to say is this, is there is a society around us that we're living in that has fallen so far away from the ways of Jesus that we need an outpouring of God's Spirit to break out. 
We need a move of God. We need moral structures to be reinstalled around the ways of Jesus. We live in a nation that was literally, and you can debate this, sure, but like there, it was literally the, the, the fabric of our society was birthed around the idea of pursuing God and his holy ways. Now, one of the ways that we experience renewal uh, in our life or in our family or in our society is when we turn to God, when we pray, when we desire his presence, and when we repent of our sins and we pursue personal holiness. And so that leads me to introducing our new series. And you're like, wow, Brian, that's a strong start. Thank you. Um, it leads us to introducing our new preaching series on Lent, a six-week series that builds up to Easter. Can you believe that we're six weeks out from Easter? A pretty crazy thought. But what is Lent? In the, in, the tr- in the traditional Christian calendar, Lent is the six-week series that is building up to us ex- uh, celebrating the joy of Easter. Lent is marked by fasting, both from food and festivities, whereas Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus after his death on the cross. Lent recalls the events leading up to and including Jesus' crucifixion. And we started this at a beautiful service on Wednesday morning when we came together for Ash Wednesday. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be in a preaching series looking at this uh, build-up to Easter. We're going to follow some crucial parts of the story from Genesis all the way through to Exodus. And we started today with this account in the garden where we see sin enter the world. And our goal is that we would allow the Holy Spirit in this series to remove the things in our life that prevent us from the flourishing and abundant life that Jesus has for us. So oftentimes when we approach this kind of topic or moment in the Christian calendar, we can become apprehensive or we can become nervous or we can become be, feel filled with guilt or shame as we consider sin. But the idea is really not to look upon our sin and feel guilt or shame, but rather to look to Jesus and the abundant life that he offers us and to take these things in our lives that are preventing us in engaging in a beautiful relationship of intimacy with him and remove those and replace them with the love of Christ. And so today we're going to be looking at the idea of sin and repentance. Now this is a really challenging one as a pastor to come up in front of your church. Like it's so much better to talk about like love or prayer or grace, but let's talk about sin. Not very exciting, but whenever we talk about sin, inevitably we can feel like that shame is leaking around the corner or like, oh, we're going to be judged or we're going to have to confess and I don't really want to do that because I don't want anyone to know the stuff that's happening in my life or whatever the case may be. My hope and prayer is that when we come out of this morning and out of the six-week series, we'll come out of the shadow of shame and that we'll be able to... have a renewed look at this thing called sin that we all experience and have this joy in realizing that we sit as children. My wife's sending me updates here of the soccer. I can't believe it. Let me just turn this off. Talk about sin. Okay, so my hope is that we would have this renewed sense around the beauty of what it means to be a child of a loving father who does not condemn or shame us, but releases us into a place of life and freedom. 
Now, when we do this, when we look at sin, and we look at sin through the lens of the gospel, instead of fear, what we end up with is freedom. Instead of shame, we end up with salvation. Instead of condemnation, what we find is communion with the Father. And so here's a map of the next kind of uh, 20 minutes or so of my talk, the anatomy of sin. What I want to do is I want to look at sin. I want to look at God. I want us to look at how do we deal with sin, and I want to look at how do we heal from our sin. So first up, what is sin? The Oxford Dictionary says that sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against the divine law. Simply put, sin, as a Christian, sin is missing the mark or missing the standard that has been set by God for holy living. Now, God sets a standard for us to live according to. He sets these uh, laws or these ways or these rules of life. He sets these things, he puts them in place so that we can find freedom. Oftentimes when we look at God's law or we look at God's ways or we talk about personal holiness, particularly in the Christian church, we can come to this immediate response that, well, God wants to control us. Like God puts these things in place so that he can be like God and king and control what we do. Like we just have to do these things because he's God, he's told us to do them. Now, that is just not the case. God sets a standard, God sets a rule or a law because he is a creator God who created us and he knows as our creator what will bring about ultimate flourishing and fulfillment in our life on this planet. So God knows what will ultimately satisfy and fulfill the deepest longings of our heart and so he teaches us, he gives us a way in which we should live so that we can flourish. You know, we're sitting in our team meeting this week on uh, Wednesday morning, and we're looking at just like kind of commands of God or, or things, or ways in which God invites us to live. And we're saying, is there any way or anything that God asks us or tells us to do or not do in the Bible where, you, where if you like whittled it down, it comes to this one conclusion that it's just, well, we have to do this thing or we don't do this thing because God said so. Like there is no initial uh, benefit to ourselves and no benefit to a society. It's just like simply God decided he wanted to be in charge, so he made up a rule and there's no benefit to anybody. He just said it so that he can be God and we have to listen to him. And literally, we kind of went through it, everything, and we could not come up with a single command or invitation from God to live a certain way that did not personally benefit us and benefit society around us. God's not making up rules so that he can just be in charge and control us. He's setting about ways or a standard so that we can live in ultimate fulfillment in this life and in the next. Ignatius of Iola, he, she says this, sin is unwillingness to trust what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Oswald Chambers says the root of all sin lies in the suspicion that God is not good. We are vulnerable and dependent, and in a corner of our hearts, we always suspect that we might be safer if we took care of our own needs rather than depending on God. Sin, therefore, creates illusions to protect us from our fears. And so we have this wrong view of sin and the wrong view of the holiness that God invites us into. We see this as a way to control us or to like, make us not have any fun. That's one way that people can look at it. 
So how do we look at sin? Well, I would say that in 2023, society at large, particularly Western society, has a a distorted view of sin. I think we distort sin in two ways. The one way is culturally, and the other way is religiously. So let's look at those. Culturally, I think we dismiss sin. We basically have come up with a social contract in this new day where it's like everybody gets to live out their own truth. You do you, I'll do me. As long as you, what you do and you doing you doesn't affect me, you can do whatever you want. And it's just like we just dismiss sin. We dismiss sin in someone else's life because, well, you know, they're not harming anyone. Or we dismiss sin in our own lives because, well, we just kind of not harming anyone. We privatize our sin. We say, well, surely it's not that bad. God knows my heart. You know, I love Jesus, so it's okay. I can, you know, let the mark slip here and do a little sideways business deal there because, you know, at the end of the day, is it really making any difference? And so we excuse our sin away or we dismiss sin both socially and individually as a way to kind of let ourselves get away with whatever we want to do. Uh, I find it fascinating, and John starts in his book, he says this, he says, the American psychiatrist out of Harvard, Carl Menninger, in his book, Whatever Became of Sin, describing the malaise of the Western society, its general mood of gloom and doom, he adds that one misses any mention of sin. Basically saying we've taken sin out of the equation. It was once a word that everyone, once a word in, sorry, It was a word once in everyone's mind, but is now really, if ever, heard. Does that mean, he asked, that no sin is involved in all of our troubles? Has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? Inquiring into the causes of sin's disappearance, uh, Dr. Menninger notes first that many former sins have become crimes, so that responsibility for dealing with them has passed from the church to the state, from uh, priest to policeman, while others have disappeared into sickness, or at least symptoms of sickness, so that in their case, punishment has been replaced by treatment. A third convenient device called collective irresponsibility has enabled us to transfer the blame for some of our deviant behavior from ourselves as individuals to society as a whole, or to one of its many groupings. So we've made excuses for the sins that, you know, are evident in the scriptures and still around today, but we just don't talk about them and we dismiss them. Another way that we have distorted sin is religiously. Now, this has its fingers in some areas of society, probably less and less so as we move forward into the modern day. But religiously, we have this domineering uh, approach to sin, like this condemning, pharisaical response to sin. In Matthew 23, Jesus addresses, says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to to lift a finger to move them. We see this in some churches where, and maybe this is some of your response, where you have felt from another human being or someone in the church condemnation over your sin, judged because of a certain way of living. 
Many people have felt the effects of feeling like they've been looked down upon, uh, upon from the ladder of religiosity. Like you have to live a certain way in order to be accepted by your brothers and sisters in the church. Some of us may have even felt the effects of being someone who's looked down upon other people from the ladder of religiosity. Now, there are other disillusionments and, and uh, distortions of sin in the world today. But with all of this disillusionment around sin and what is good and what is sin and what is not, where do we go from here? Well, I think that we don't need to stop and dissect and decide what is sin and what, we don't need to give more attention to sin. I think we need to start giving more attention to God. You see, we do not look closer at sin to solve the problem. We look to the Father who, who live, demonstrates for us a better way. We look more intently at God. Andrew Newberg, he says, contemplating a loving God rather than a punitive God reduces anxiety, depression, and stress and increases feelings of security, compassion, and love. Religious and spiritual contemplation changes our, your brain in a profoundly different way because it strengthens a unique neural circuit that specifically enhances social awareness and empathy while subduing destructive feelings and emotions. The personality you assign to God has distinct neural patterns that correlate with your own emotional styles of behavior. Friends, I think it was um, A.W. Tozer said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. When we look at God and we recognize His holiness and we recognize the fact that He cannot be in the presence of sin and that there are consequences to our fallen nature as human beings. And we hold intention the fact that he is a loving father. We start to recognize that we have a beautiful savior that has been sent to us in Jesus Christ. You see, the, the wages of sin is death. But the grace and mercy of God as our loving father invites us into an intimate place to receive freedom and life and joy. In John 10, we read, the thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. When we look at God and we view God through the lens of a domineering, legalistic, um, you know, judge on the stand waiting to condemn us for our wrongdoings. When we look at God in this way, what it will produce in our own hearts is death or destruction. It'll, it'll, it'll produce this idea that uh, God is someone that I need to stay away from, that I need to avoid. But when we see that God is a loving Father, someone that I can approach because He wants to shower me in love and grace and mercy, what I start to recognize is that He wants to produce life and life to the full in me. You know, I'm a, I'm a dad, and I've got two boys, and I have rules, there are ways in which there's things that my kids have to do in order to kind of, you know, live life in my house. I don't do things or put things in place or tell them that they need to go to bed at a certain time or they can't eat sweets 24-7 just because I want to be their master. Like, I tell them these things, and we, I say, Judah, you cannot eat 
you know, donuts every meal of the day because I'm a loving father and I know that in order for him to flourish and thrive in his life, he needs to eat a carrot every now and then, okay? Simplistic example of the fact that as a loving father, I'm not trying to bring about death and destruction on my kid. I'm actually trying to bring about life and life to the full. And so I put systems and measures in place to help him flourish and thrive. And the same can be said of God. He sets about a standard or a way of life that will produce life and life to the full. Now, if we see God through the lens of his infinite love and his unchanging holiness, how do we deal with the problem of sin? Well, if God desires ultimate and right relationship as our Father and as the Creator, yet He is holy and just and demands our own respect, and sin is lodged in between us, how can God maintain His holiness and His love? Well, the answer is only found at one place in the cross. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the age, coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. John Piper, he says, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort of every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. Isn't that beautiful? We come to the cross of Christ who makes a way for us, pays our price, and redeems us before the Father. John Stott goes on to say, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is our beautiful Savior. And so it is only through the cross of Christ that we can deal with our sin. So how do we heal from our sin? Well, I believe it starts with repentance. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says God's kindness or His grace or His way that He has made for us through the cross of Christ is intended to lead us to repentance. So when we have the right view of sin, that this separates us from God, and we have the right view of God as a loving Father, and we understand the fact that God's grace has given us a Savior who makes us right, what this does is it leads us to a place of repentance. I believe we need a cry of repentance to be birthed in our hearts, in our church, and in our society at large. 
Now, repentance is not one of the words that we like talk about much or we use much in the modern day, especially, you know, outside of the church, never mind inside the church. But I want you to see is this, is that repentance was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, the first thing Jesus says in Mark's gospel in Matthew chapter 4 is, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in the last record uh, of the recorded words of Jesus in the book of Revelation, when he's speaking to all the different churches, he says this, he says in Revelation 3, those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So what I want us to see is rather than being like a secondary issue or a side gig or a fringe topic, repentance is actually uh, Jesus himself that frames his entire ministry from beginning to end around this idea of repentance. It's like as Jesus saying, hey, if you want the life that I have on offer, it starts and ends with repentance, recognition of our sin, knowing that we have a loving father and coming before him for forgiveness. Now, repentance means change. The best definition I've heard about the word repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of life. Oftentimes, we think of like sin and how do we deal with our sin in the church. We, we can immediately jump to the fact, well, I need to stop sinning. So like I need to change my behavior. But repentance actually means, well, it changes the mind, it changes the heart, and that leads to a change of life. See, it, it's not behavior uh, change, it's heart transformation. Repentance is when the revelation of sin in our lives that comes from God, He reveals to us His ways, He reveals to us the beauty of His kingdom, He reveals to us that we fall short of His holy standards. When God reveals this to us, and, and changes, it, repentance changes the things that we want, in our minds, it changes our desires, it changes our heartfelt uh, needs, it changes the way that we behave in this world, and as a result of that, we stop sinning. Now, I want to end today by looking at two pictures. I know this has kind of been jumping around. It's difficult to talk about sin and let it not be just kind of like a lecture. It's difficult to talk about repentance and not let it become something that's like, feels like condemning, like, or like you need to, you, we're all bad and we all need to like say sorry. What I want to do is actually just lean back into that idea of revival. Lean back into that idea of a move of God. Because you see, when we sin, we put a barrier between ourselves and God. When we repent, our sin is removed, our shame is removed. And what happens is we have now space in our lives to receive more of God's presence. And so this isn't so much about like repent so that you can like be, you know, fine. This is repent so that we can create space for more of God in your life. And so I want to uh, talk about the beauty of repentance. You see, we're not repenting just for the sake of it. We, we don't want to repent just so that we can beat ourselves up and tell ourselves how bad we are. We're repenting because repentance gives us access to a fresh encounter with the presence of God. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 3. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, when God convicts us of our sin and we repent, there's a sort of like a release of joy that happens. And you might be thinking, what? Like I'm going to recognize like 
my sin, and then I'm gonna like come before a holy God, creator of the heavens and earth. I'm gonna like repent and confess my sins to him, and, and, and that's gonna release joy. I wanna say yes. The scriptures tell us that when we repent and we turn to God, our sins are completely wiped out. Everything that you have done, are doing, any secret sin in your life, uh, anything that we will do in the future that we bring before the, the loving Father will bring about space for a refreshing to come from the Lord. There's a sense of an inbreaking power of God's presence when we repent, and nearness to God that we otherwise would not experience, a returning to the garden, which we looked at in our teaching text this morning, where there was intimacy and life in the garden. Sin came about and we were separated from God. And when we repent, there's the sense of like we're coming back to the intimacy that Adam enjoyed in Genesis 2. And so repentance is not just for the sake of moral behavioral change. The point of it is so that more of God's presence can break into our lives and we can enjoy Him. We want to be transformed. You know, if you, if you want to know why we need a recognition of our sin and a cry for repentance, why we need to truly like turn to God, it's because repentance normally precedes an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to close with two images, one image with two pictures. The first picture, it'll come up on the screen, is actually a picture of the driest place on earth. It's the Atacama Desert in Chile. I don't know if... Uh, Anyone's ever been there, but uh, apparently San Diego's a desert. Since I've arrived in the last two months, it's just rained here constantly, so I think all of you are just lying. But, um, but this right here is the driest place on earth, the Atacama Desert. It's a place that has so little moisture uh, uh, that when uh, the astronauts are actually, and, and people, the space people, let's call them NASA, are doing uh, experiments and, and studies on what life will be like or could potentially be like on Mars, this is where they go to conduct their experience, the Atacama Desert in Chile. Now, after several years, uh, sorry, several years ago, they had a storm in the Atacama Desert that brought about seven years of rainfall in 12 hours, and something unexpected happened. When that much rain came at one time in the middle of a desert, they had something which was called a super bloom. And you can see in the next picture here, this is a picture also of the Atacama Desert. This, this happened directly after this outpouring of rainfall. Rainfall that would have normally occurred, just spaced over um, uh, uh, seven years, occurred in 12 hours, and this was the result. They called it a super bloom. And they didn't know it, but deep beneath the surface of the dry, arid land was uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of seeds of flowers. But it wasn't until there was a certain amount of rainfall all at once that these seeds had the capacity to grow and to thrive. And I think that this could be kind of a prophetic picture for us as a church. You know, we can go along and we can, uh, you know, experience the little drippings of rain that could come in the desert over the space of seven years, and it will still be a desert. The capacity for the seeds beneath the surface will never grow if that rainfall fell over seven years. But when there was an outpouring of rain, a super bloom occurred. The potential was released. And so... That's almost like a prophetic picture of what I want to pray for us as a church. That, that, that 
You know, you might be saying, Brian, why emphasize prayer? Why have prayer rooms? Why a series on the Holy Spirit at the end of the last year? Why a call of repentance today and highlighting the, the, the devastation of sin? It's because, friends, repentance normally precedes an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And an outpouring of the Holy Spirit will release the capacity that is lying dormant in the life of a local Christian community that can see an outbreaking or a super bloom spread across our city. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. Capacity that is there, you know, they, those flowers, those seeds, they were there. It just needed a watering. And I'm like, God, what would happen in our church with people that are already having, you know, 25-hour and 14-hour prayer meetings in their homes? I know there's a group of students that meet on a Tuesday evening and, and they, they outgrew the homes that they were wanting to worship in. And so they got sent a, um, a sound system from another church up north. They got sent a sound system and now they meet in car parks or parking lots, sorry, parking lots around the city so that they can worship God on Tuesday evenings. I'm like, God, what would you do with those seeds? So how do we get access to the outpouring of the spirits? Well, every revival starts with prayer and repentance. This is what I want. I want God. I want Jesus. I desire His presence. And I know that God comes where He's wanted. So I just want to say, like, can you want God with me? Like, can we desire more of God in our lives? So we repent. And we're repenting so that times of refreshing can come. Refreshing from the presence of God. I just want to create an atmosphere here this morning. An atmosphere through our response to God, through radical obedience, through the reinstitution and reimagining of what worship and prayer can be like, that we would seek God, that we would trust God. I want to attract the presence of God in our midst. I believe if we do that, we'll experience a, a supernatural spiritual bloom that nobody thought was possible. So we need a cry of repentance. Not so that we can feel bad, but so that we can experience more of God. And this will only happen if we get a clear vision of God, a recognition of our sin, the reality that Jesus Christ paid it all for us, and, and, and that will draw us into a place of repentance that wipes away our sin and allows us to have a fresh outpouring of the Spirit in our lives. So church, this is my simple prayer. Will you join me in praying that God will release a cry of repentance in our lives? Will you believe that God will bring an outpouring of His Spirit, that seven years of fruit can happen in a moment, in a day of ministry in our church? We see an outpouring of His Spirit that, you know, you know, if you were standing in that desert a week before the rain, and you told people that there was gonna be like this whole desert was to be filled with flowers, they would think you're an idiot. They'll be like, how is this place gonna be filled with flowers? And then a week later, you'll be dancing around the flowers. You'll be like, how are you like me now? You know, like, look what's happened. If you were in the first week of February, standing in Asbury, that chapel that they're in, and you said that there was gonna be a revival and that people from all over the world are gonna be flying in and, and they're gonna to have to close all the streets in that town because there's too many cars and too many people and people are queuing for like hours to have 10 minutes in the chapel. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Like that, honestly, it's not even a nice chapel. Like they haven't, they haven't updated it. It's not cool. They don't have like famous worship leaders. Like you would just think, nah, it's not gonna happen yet. You know? Like we got a much better building. Honestly. But like 
God comes where He's wanted. And, and then, and then there's, that just started with a group of people praying, and that, like the moment of repentance, then God's Spirit breaks out. People got together, they prayed, and God arrived. Amen. That's all I want to do. I like kind of felt a little bit all over, but I'm just like, that's actually just what I want to communicate. Can we just cry out to the Father, repent of our sins, and trust Him for an outpouring of His Spirit in our hearts and in our church and our city? Okay, I'm going to invite you to stand if you're comfortable. And we're just going to go into a moment of respond, responding and responding to the Word of God. We don't want to just be hearers of the Word. We want to be doers of the Word. So I just want to invite you in this moment, the band will play. And just, if you want to close your eyes, if you want to, however you want to posture yourself physically before the Lord. And um, maybe as we've spoken about sin, immediately like something came to mind or the Spirit of God's highlighting something in your life that you need to repent of. We need to say sorry. We need to turn from these ways and turn to the Father. Place that maybe you feel convicted. Maybe this can be a moment where you just spend a time in repentance and uh, we just trust that God will renew us and pour out His Spirit upon us. Friends, repentance leads to revival. Revival doesn't, it's not crazy, it's beautiful. There can be revival in your own hearts. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out in times of refreshing may come. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you're pouring outpouring of your presence amongst us that we would experience moments of refreshing. And our brothers and sisters here today, that we would have the confidence and the security to come before a loving Father and repent, to say we're sorry. And I pray, Spirit of God, if there are areas in our life that you want to highlight to us, that you want us to bring before the Father, to bring to the cross, to allow us to be redeemed, why don't you just bring that to our attention right now? Let's take a moment just to pray and Allow the Spirit of God to redeem areas of your heart, to pour an outpouring of God's presence, refreshing. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.